Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. We're so excited today to have Anastasia McLean on the podcast. Anastasia is here to talk to us about her experience with bipolar disorder. She has a diagnosis of bipolar 2 and she's the host of the Bipolar Diaries podcast. So Anastasia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're so excited to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited as well. So I guess my first question and something that I think would be really helpful for a lot of listeners is what actually is bipolar? You know, I think it's one of those things that gets thrown around a lot, um, but not a lot of people know what the actual definition of it is. And that would be really helpful if you could just explain that to us. Yeah, of course. So bipolar, I mean, it's essentially a mood disorder. And I think that is ultimately what it is, but then it gets this kind of stereotype of just being you know, people, you know, describe the weather as bipolar because it shifts, you know, from sunny to cloudy and things like that. And it's so not just that. There's so many different layers and elements. But at the end of the day, yes, it is a mood disorder. And there are, you know, episodes of hypomania in my case and then depressive episodes. Um, But then there's also different types of bipolar. Uh, So there's Essentially, there's four different types, but there's so many things that some people think there's seven and some people think there's just the two. Um, But and as I always say, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, a psychiatrist. All my research is based off the Internet and also speaking with other people. But there's bipolar one, which is probably, you know, the most, I guess, common and the most recognized of bipolars. Um, And that's, you know, you have your mania, your manic episodes, and then your depressive episodes. And it's kind of said that usually someone might be like hospitalized from an episode. And then you have bipolar two, which is what I am. And I have hypermanic episodes and then depressive episodes, but they're typically not as severe as bipolar one. And then you have cyclothymia, which is a bit more like rapid cycling bipolar, um, and might be lasting, you know, a shorter amount of time. And then there's, I guess it's called the other bipolar, but I hate calling it that. And it's kind of where people don't necessarily have all the symptoms of bipolar, but they do show signs of it. So, yeah, so there's so many different like layers to it and different symptoms. You know, if you're in a hypomanic episode or a manic episode, you can be very like uh, hypersexual, so hypersexuality, spending a lot of money, taking risky you know, making risky decisions, being impulsive and things like that. So, so many things that people 
wouldn't account for. Can you actually just on that, Anastasia, could you actually chat with us a little bit about, you know, what is mania, what is hypomania, um, and what do depressive episodes look like? And I guess, you know, in general, but more from your sort of experience. So what do these things sort of feel like for you? And, and yeah. you know, it really interesting too, you were saying before that even though bipolar is, yes, essentially a mood disorder, you were saying that there's all these other layers and all these other things that sort of go into it. And I'm wondering if you can just almost give us a bit of a picture about what this diagnosis looks like for you or what this condition looks like for you. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say because, I mean, I didn't know what hypermania or mania was. And, you know, from the outside, it can look like a really good time. <laughs> um, but essentially yeah. it's not, you know, and it's obviously not a healthy lifestyle. It's not, you know, sustainable some people love their mania because they're so creative on it and everything and like there's positives to it and that can be you know you're really fun to be around you're really charming but you know when I experience my hypomania and something that my family and I've kind of realized is that I've probably been in an episode in the past few months actually um caused from being physically sick and stressed and that's kind of put me in an episode but essentially, you know, it can be for me, I mean, I'm very sexual. I, if I'm in a hypomanic episode, I am masturbating a lot. I'm probably having sex with a lot of people. I'm spending a lot of money. You know, I've spent money on crazy stuff lately. And it's so weird for me because I don't know. I, you know, as a child, I was really shy growing up and I'm so confident when I'm hypomanic, like I will do anything. I can walk up to that person. I can give a public speech and not even think twice about it. And so it's so foreign to me because, you know, growing up, I was not like that. And now suddenly I have these, you know, this grand personality that, and then loves giving like massive expensive gifts to people and being really generous and overly generous. And Which I'm must be so fun for the people around you, but not for oh you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've, I've bought my sister once a $1,500 cardio bracelet for no reason. And she was like, we are returning this <laughs> because I live paycheck to paycheck. I can't afford that. So luckily I have the people around me being like, no, that can't happen. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what it looks like to me. But then there's this other side, you know, people think you're really happy and I get then really irritable. I'm really like quick to get annoyed with something. I'm very impatient. I'm very, it just things irritate me and it can come off kind of quite aggressive. Um, I think I definitely have like an anger problem. You know, I definitely can be snappy and go from zero to a hundred. So that's kind of the other side of hypomania for me. And then, I mean, de the depressive episodes are kind of what you would expect. There's, I don't leave my room. I either eat a lot or don't eat enough. There's obviously suicidal thoughts. There's thoughts of just like wanting to sleep forever and not wake up kind of thing. And yeah, I think that's quite, no, I don't want to say standard, but I feel like when you think of a depressive episode, I think it's what pr people probably think of and just feelings of like worthlessness and guilt. You know, I think guilt from having to put you're not having to, but your family's experienced this, you know, and trying to support you. And I hold a lot of guilt for that. And that can sometimes make me feel obviously really depressed because, yeah, I feel selfish in a way, but it's obviously a condition and illness that I can't help. I was born like this. So, yeah, I think I don't know if I answered your question properly. <laughs> No, I think that's, you did a really good job of answering it. Um, and it sounds like, and 
it's in the name, I guess, but it sounds like it's sort of going from um, this really highly elevated state. We've talked about on the podcast before um, in terms of our kind of zones of arousal, right? You know, being really heightened and hyper aroused, which um, can be both positive and negative emotion. You can experience really heightened joy and excitability and impulsiveness and all the good things. But then it also makes you really quick to anger, low frustration tolerance. You know, you're all so at that really heightened point. And then the other end of that is that kind of blue zone or that low arousal state, which is our depressive state. Yeah. And I think it's it sometimes is scary because I get a lot of people messaging me talking about how they love their mania side. And I mean, it's great that they're kind of, you know, I guess embracing what they have, but it, there's also like caution. It's not a sustainable, healthy lifestyle. There's also, you know, you're subject to substance abuse, alcohol abuse. Um, you know what I mean? Like I, I never go out of routine. And in the past few months, there's been instances where I will just randomly go out and get drunk. And that's so unlike me. And that was kind of one of the telltale signs that, you know, I'm just craving this need to go and party really hard when I'm not the person that I have to have plans in place. I very much look ahead to the future. Um, so, and then obviously that leads to sometimes the actions that, or the decisions that you make in a hypermanic episode or a manic episode is then sometimes what causes your depression because you've made these decisions and these impulsive moves. And then you come out of it and you're like, what did I do? I have completely messed over myself. So, you know, growing up, when I was a kid, I was nothing like this. And then I get really confused between my actual personality and my bipolar hypomanic state, because I do feel like a lot of the time I've adopted my hypomanic state to be my personality. Because, you know, even when I'm not hypomanic, I'm still really confident. I'm still that kind of crazy girl that like wants to make everyone laugh and things like that. And I very, I do get confused that my friends and my work colleagues don't really know who I actually am because I only really feel normal around my parents, you know, because they know who I am. But then I'm also like, maybe I've just grown up. I don't know. So it's very confusing. I sometimes feel like, kind of, not fake, but it's like habit now. It's out of habit. I've been in those states and then I'm like, oh, well, this worked really well. So I'm going to act like that, but I don't really know if I feel it. Yeah, God, that sounds like such a tricky thing to tease apart because, you know, and n- not to enter like philosophical land, but, <laughs> you know, like what is our personality, right? You know, how do we know what's kind of quote unquote real and yeah. what's exactly, as you said, kind of adapted to suit the situation? Because to varying degrees, I guess, in a sense, that's true for everyone in the sense yes. of we learn what works well for us, what gets a good response, and then we kind of integrate that. Um, and it can be really hard when there's such a big element of how other people see you that yeah. feels like, is this really me or is this this thing that I have? Or, yeah, that sounds really tricky. No, definitely. I think that's the one thing I have to remember whenever I think about that. I'm like, I think everyone is a product of their environment and all that kind of stuff. So I have to cut myself some slack because I don't want to go around being like, I'm so fake, <laughs> you know, but it feels natural in a way. It does feel natural at times because it's so easy. Like it comes to me so easily, but then I have times where I'm like, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> 
It's so interesting because we think of this idea of we have to be a consistent self between all different environments, all different people, interactions, etc. And that's actually really rare that people are one consistent identity. You know, we might have like our core identity and who we are sort of at our core, um, but it's actually quite normal to adapt how we present ourselves and how we um, interact across different environments. Like, for instance, I'm not the same person at work as I am with my friends. Um, if I was, that would be quite weird. <laughs> I'd be fired. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, so, you know, I really like what you're saying there, Anastasia, about cutting yourself some slack um, and being, you know, maybe I'm just like a human being experiencing the world, bumbling my way through life as is everyone. And I don't need to be genuine, whatever that means all the time. Yeah. And I think, I think we change as we go through different phases of life. I don't think we're meant to actually stay the same if you're the same as you were when you were 16 as to when you're in your twenties and then thirties and forties. Is that actually, yeah. Is that adaptive? (laughs) Probably not. Um, Yeah. I guess too, like a lot of the people that we talk to um, on the podcast will talk a lot about their experience of masking. So putting on that face, sort of pretending um, to be quote unquote normal. And I guess, you know, we all have certain behaviors and things that we do because we know, oh, this will get a really positive response. Whereas this other trait or behavior that I have will maybe get a negative response from society or the people around me. Um, So I know like a lot of the women we've chatted to who are autistic or ADHD, they've talked a lot about their experience of masking and how if you're masking, it is hard to be connected to your sense of identity. And so it's interesting like hearing you talk about your core sense of identity and then the bipolar and then also I think some of the masking that we all do in different environments. So can you tell us about your journey to diagnosis? So having a chat about, you know, what were some of the signs for you of developing bipolar? Yeah, um, well, it was a long road. <laughs> my, I think for my mom, she always talks about, like, I've been this, not bipolar, but like just been sort of struggling since I was born. Even when I was a child, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but she I was really difficult to feed as a child. It's almost like I would have a panic attack as a baby or something. And so I always kind of, there was always something different about me. I just found things a lot harder and was, you know, classic temper tantrums, but I feel like it was to another level, very high anxiety And I started seeing my first psychologist when I was maybe eight or nine. And then I went into group therapy and then I went, I just, I've been to so many and it was always kind of looking at just really high anxiety. And then there came a time when I was in high school and I probably went through maybe an entire year or a bit more of very full on depression. Um, so it was definitely, they just thought I was, you know, anxious and depressed. Um, and bipolar was never on the table. I didn't even know what bipolar was. I'd heard about it. I'd heard, and I say this in whatever these are called, people were crazy. And so it just didn't even cross my mind and just things as I left school and, you know, I struggled with an eating disorder and 
I was just had been through a lot of trauma, a lot of bullying, and we kind of just chalked it up to all of that. That was it. And finally, I had to drop out of uni. I was feeling really anxious, and I was actually seeing a um a physio about my back, and she had bipolar. Which no, she didn't say I had bipolar, but you know, she said I've seen this woman, and you should really go and get checked out. And then my GP referred me there, and we went and saw her, and it was my sister and I, and. She just kind of did this full on, you know, kind of questionnaire thing with me and uh, eventually came to a diagnosis of bipolar 2 disorder. I cried. I was like, I'm nothing like that. And then within, you know, left and got in the car and read about it. And it was the first time I fully understood myself, fully made sense, fully felt like I belonged somewhere. Um, It just ticked everything. And I kind of got excited in a way, kind of like relief of like, this is it, because that was at that point, I said to my mom, this was the last person I was going to, you know, I'm nearly at uh, coming up to 20 years of like a bit less than 20 years. I can't do this anymore. Like the pain is really affecting me. Um, so that was, you know, just, I'm so grateful that it happened in that way because my life completely changed after that, after going on medication, I did have some, uh, slip ups of, I actually got diagnosed with PTSD and narcolepsy four years on from that. But again, my life changed for the better. And I've been, I obviously have my times. I I still have my episodes. I get triggered and things like that. But my life is so much better than it was before. You know, I used to think when I was younger, I could not picture myself as an adult. I didn't think I would actually even make it past the age of 18. I did not think I would still be here. So it was really a life changing and also like saved me having that diagnosis. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um, and I I wanted to ask you, and you've already kind of answered it, but I wanted to ask you, you know, what did getting that diagnosis actually mean for you? And the reason I'm really interested in this is because I think something like um, bipolar, for instance, can be seen often as one of the quote unquote scary diagnoses, right? It's like, oh, this is something so major and this is something so profound and, you know, all of these things that it's interesting because people can have different responses and reactions to receiving that. And it was really interesting to hear the trajectory of how you kind of process that, right? That initial, oh my God, no, to hang on a second. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was honestly, it's funny because when I first got diagnosed, it was like a family secret. We didn't tell anyone. I told like one of my best friends and I said, don't tell anyone. And it was a very serious conversation. I sat down. It was like me telling her I had some severe illness that was life-threatening. You know, I could die any minute. I just said, you know, I was like, I have bipolar. And her reaction was obviously like, oh my gosh. And now I just, it rolls off the back of me. It's so not that bipolar is nothing, but it's so just, I'm so confident with it. There's nothing wrong with having bipolar. Everyone is born differently. There is no such thing as normal. Um, and so I definitely was very scared at first. And even when I went to post about even having mental health issues for the first time online, my family were very concerned, not because they're embarrassed anyway, they were concerned about the reaction of people and how it's going to make me feel because they just want to protect me essentially. And They were worried, but as time's gone on, like they're so proud and it's been absolutely amazing. But yeah, the diagnosis really was the best thing for me. It just, you know, I just never felt like I fitted in anywhere. And it's so odd to find comfort in that sort of way, like fitting in in a group of bipolar people or people with bipolar, but it's 
so nice. I, the amount of people I've connected with from my podcast has been absolutely insane and it's been amazing. And it just shows there's so many people out there like us. And I just don't want anyone to feel scared of a diagnosis because it's not, it can be managed and it's not a death sentence of any sort of kind, you know, and it, there's such beautiful things that can, can come from it. So yeah, I'm definitely, it was the greatest day of my life. That sounds so weird, but it really was the greatest day of my life because it's the day my life changed forever. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it sounds weird at all. And I think it's sounds totally legit to find comfort in fitting into your group because I think particularly as you described Anastasia having that really long history of chronic severe anxiety your experience with depression in high school um, that in and of itself is so isolating right because it just makes you feel like what's wrong with me that no one else is experiencing why am I having such a hard time knowing the why of things actually makes all the difference and it makes them so much more manageable because you're like oh great this is why that's happening excellent now here's how I'm going to move forward from this rather than just this nebulous like distressing oh my god I'm just constantly going to be anxious and depressed for the rest of my life Yeah, you've definitely hit the nail on the head because it definitely brought me comfort in like when I saw things that I would do and knowing of why I was doing them maybe because I'm in an episode or just things like that, it it just helped me so much to understand the process of, you know, how to stop doing that if it wasn't healthy, how to get out of that, you know, how to prevent that. It really helped me. Going through high school, I would go through these depressive episodes, but then I could easily come back and be so happy and so over the top that I was constantly called an attention seeker. And I was like, do I want attention? Like, and I love attention, but I also feel like one, it was the episodes. And then part of it was also a bit more of like a cry for help. Like I didn't know what was going on with me. And I just got called a lot of nasty things in high school and people just thought I was so weird. And so, and I was so exhausting. So obviously it makes friendships hard it makes just concentrating hard at school. So I felt stupid all the time. And so it definitely also kind of, I mean, I still have trauma from my past, but it healed that a lot more to be like, that is why I was like that. And that makes so much sense. And that was completely out of my control. So I'm not to blame. I don't have this horrible attention seeking, crazy personality that's evil or anything like that. I'm just born with, you know, a chemical imbalance. And now I know how I can, you know, live with it. It it sounds like knowing the why for you has removed uh, like a lot of the shame around some of the experiences that you've been through and some of that self-blame of, you know, like, why am I doing these things or why are these things happening to me? And then when you actually have a diagnosis and you have that why, yeah, it sounds like it's been really helpful. Yeah. And I don't like to, I hate, it's hard because I go through this phase at the moment of like, I never wanted to use my bipolar as an excuse, but then I'm like, I do do things or not, not as much anymore, but like in the past when I was younger, 100% there are things that you're like, that's her bipolar for sure. You know, I'm clearly in an episode by some of the crazy stuff I've done. Um, So as as much as I don't want to say something and be like, oh, sorry, it's my bipolar. I've never lived in a world like that. I should know how to, I should train myself to censor myself and like make sure that I'm not always saying crazy, outrageous things and offending people. But I do kind of feel like it did help me to just realize 
what what happened to me was yeah not my fault essentially and it brought me comfort and it helped me to kind of move past that chapter in my life So Anastasia, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about what you were describing earlier around some of the other lesser known effects of bipolar. So things like your concentration, engaging at school. Can you please describe your kind of experience around that for us? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's crazy to think because when I was a kid and I know there's, I've seen a lot of research online and, you know, my psychiatrist told me that I guess, I don't know if it's for some people or most people, but like bipolar kicks in usually when you're going through puberty, I guess. Yeah. And I've always, it makes sense to me because as a kid, you know, I was so smart. <laughs> I tell all my friends, I'm like, I swear I was really smart when I was younger. Um, and, you know, I was in all the top classes. Things just made sense. I was just super anxious. Um, and But yeah, school was a breeze for me and my family thought I was going to be so talented and like some scientist when I was older. And then I went through puberty and nothing made sense. Like it was so confusing and I became the stupid girl in my year. And all I could think about was boys, which I guess is kind of normal, but you know, all my friends were still able to think about boys and study and things like that. And just sitting in class, I didn't understand anything anyone was saying. The structure of an essay made no sense to me. I didn't, I think because it wasn't making sense to me, I obviously like acted out and just would be, you know, the class clown. I would just talk back to teachers and like be quite, you know, sometimes rude. And I didn't do well in my HSC, my final exams. I was distressed over a boy. And I think the way it came to me was that these things were so hard for me to process because my brain was so overwhelmed thinking. And it, I, the best way I can describe it, which my psychiatrist said was a really good way of describing it, <laughs> um, is that, and this was before I got diagnosed with bipolar. So this is me first initially having a chat to her. I said to her, I feel like I have a filing cabinet in my brain and every single file or cabinet is open at the same time. And I can't concentrate on one they're all flying everywhere my brain is and I get so exhausted I'm like I go home and nap I'm tired after school and I can't just concentrate on one thing so then I take the easiest thing I think to concentrate on and then obsess about it and hone in on it and just only concentrate about that stupid boy and it obviously really hurt my grades at school it really hurt my learning I just wish I had known back then because I feel like, I mean, I like where I am in my life, but I feel like I could have done a lot better and felt more like I achieved something because I wasn't happy with my final grades, but we move on from that. But yeah, it does sometimes, I do sometimes have a hard time concentrating, but then I can be really fixated on something and concentrate really easily on it. So I guess it comes, again, it's up and down, it's a mood disorder. So it's definitely very two extremes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because there's a lot of overlap in the traits between um, like the cognitive traits between ADHD and bipolar, and they're often co-occurring as well. Um, but I think the overlap comes a lot from that really just heightened state, right? If you're, I love that example. I agree with your psychiatrist. It's a great explanation. <laughs> you know, all the filing cabinet drawers open. It's like, if your brain is in this really highly elevated state, um, that's that kind of difficulty with selection 
selective attention, right? Choosing what should I be paying attention to and what should I be filtering out or not paying attention to. But your brain's just like, here's everything. Yeah. So I used to say to my sister when I was trying to make her feel guilty, (laughs) I was like, I, she would, you know, be picking on me or something. And I would say to her, I wish you could walk a day in my shoes because I guarantee you within one hour, you'd be asleep in bed because you're exhausted by all the crap and the thoughts that are going on in your head (laughs) because they just don't stop, you know, and I'm always tired. Yeah. And I guess um, thinking, because I'm just trying to be thinking about like, what's the difference, I guess, between what's driving that for someone who is an ADHD versus someone who is bipolar. And it sounds like for someone who's bipolar, the key driver is exactly as you've explained, Anastasia, that kind of mood dysregulation where you're at such a high arousal state and then kind of flipping to a low arousal state and high, it's hard to kind of get that even keel arousal. Whereas for an ADHD, it's more like a cognitive executive function issue. And my specialty isn't bipolar. So if anyone's listening who this is their specialty, I'm sorry if I'm just making stuff up right now. (laughs) But... Um, I imagine that one of the reasons that it's so hard to get that regulation point, particularly in adolescence, is to even like take away the bipolar stuff. The adolescent brain is constantly in a state of emotional flux. The adolescent brain has so much difficulty regulating emotional states, even at the best of times. And so when you add bipolar to the mix, then I can completely understand why that felt almost impossible for you to do. Yeah, definitely. Like just what you touched on talking about ADHD, you know, someone or two people have tried to diagnose me with ADHD. And I know there are people out there with bipolar and ADHD, but it just didn't, like bipolar felt right right to me. I just feel like I'm bipolar and I have, they just cross over. I have similar symptoms to, because it just didn't feel, it doesn't click with me. I don't show all the symptoms. I just think there's a crossover. It didn't, yeah, I never felt like I've, I don't feel like I have ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. There's a massive crossover. And I think this is something that's really important um, for people to sort of understand, I guess, in that things that look like executive dysfunction or things that look like struggling to pay attention or difficulty keeping information organized in your mind, there's actually so many different drivers of that, so many things that can contribute to that. Um, And the diagnostic process is really about teasing out what's coming from where. Um, And yeah, exactly. With bipolar, it's more of that mood dysregulation Would it be okay if I asked you a little bit about what your medication journey has been like? Because you mentioned, you know, like with getting the right diagnosis and that led to getting the right supports, the right um, medication to support you. Yeah. So I, I mean, growing up as a child, I was never obviously put on medication. It just wasn't a thought. It was more go through the CBT, you do therapy, Uh, And then I got to my final year at school and my GP put me on an antidepressant, which now knowing that that shouldn't happen with someone that's on bipolar, like you shouldn't just put them on an antidepressant. It can actually have the opposite effect. And so then I tried another antidepressant and I was kind of just put on it and would just take one. I would never go, you know, experiment with other doses. So I felt very numb and just weird and then had a bad time where I was in bed and couldn't get out of bed and actually went really depressed. So we took me off that. 
And I actually didn't try any other meds until then I got diagnosed with bipolar because of my reaction to the previous ones. I kind of just lived life and suffered. <laughs> um, and so finally, when I was diagnosed with bipolar, I then started uh, Lamotrigine and went up to, you know, you started on a low dose and went up to 200. And that's when I finally, I just kind of woke up one day and felt, I guess, again, whatever these are, what are these called? Air quotes. Yeah. Air quotes. <laughs> really hard on an audio medium. But I know. Really I know. I'm like, what are these called? Um, air quotes, normal. Um, but yeah, I just felt like I could understand decisions. I could make decisions. I just felt I was rational. You know, I understood myself. And so that was amazing. And then I started to experience, um, quite bad sleep patterns. Eventually after years of feeling great, um, I would see things when I would wake up and I got really paranoid. I experienced sleep paralysis. I was napping all the time and I was really depressed. And so I went to a psychiatrist. I went to a sleep doctor first actually. And he believed there was trauma in my life, which there was, um, and diagnosed me with narcolepsy from my sleep study. And I went, he said, asked me to see a psychiatrist, went there and they put me on an antidepressant that works with my lamotrigine called venlafaxine. Went on that and my sleep became amazing. I mean, it's not perfect, but I stopped seeing things when I would wake up. Um, my paranoia went away and yeah, it just became a lot better. That one I do have sometimes a hard time with just because when I sleep at night, I sweat really bad and only 20% of people get it on this medication. I, and I'm not talking like I'm a bit sweaty. I'm talking like, it looks like I've wet the entire bed from top to bottom, but it works so well for me, which I've kind of, I've just tried to think of ways, you know, I usually don't really sleep with a cover. I sleep on top of my bed. I have kind of most, I can get through it like three nights of the week and then like four nights I might sweat and some nights will be worse than the others, but it's worth it to me because I'm like so much better. Um, and I also have had bad experiences if I've missed a day or two with withdrawals. One actually happened this week. Basically, I, it's hard, it is hard to see a doctor over here. Um, the NHS is amazing, but they're very burnt out. They've got so much because um, it's all free over here. And I couldn't get my prescription. The pharmacy wouldn't give me an emergency one. And I was coming up to day three and I was vomiting. I was anxious. I was sweating profusely. I nearly fainted in the pharmacist. They had to, my flatmate had to come get me. I had a panic attack. And I actually was meant to be at a wedding on Wednesday in France. And I had to skip the wedding because I was so sick and just my mind went to a really bad state. Um, so that's the downside, I think, of my medication and the experiences I've had with it. But my Lamotrigine's great. I've never had anything bad with it, to my knowledge. Hello, listeners. We have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered.
Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So Anastasia, could you tell us a little bit about how you feel like your bipolar has impacted relationships, if if anything? Definitely impacted relationships, especially when I was undiagnosed from starting with my family. I was very aggressive towards them. I think it's because they were like my punching bag, which is never okay. But I think because, you know, I would come home from school or something like that and have all this pent up you know, I was upset and I felt like no one had stood me and I could get that out around them. So they took a lot of stuff from me. And I, especially my mom and my sister, I was really, I felt like I was really horrible to them growing up and they stood by me. I mean, they do what families did. They love me, but it definitely, it obviously didn't hurt our relationship, but it just made me feel really guilty and bad. And I have a lot of guilt today about that which is sometimes why when I get in my hypomanic episodes, I buy my sister cardio bracelets because <laughs> I'm trying, honestly, because she's, I have these moments being like, I don't know how to show my sister love properly because she's the big sister and I don't know what I can do for her. So I'm going to buy her this bracelet because I feel guilty about the way I've treated her. Um, so yeah, it definitely affected family relationships, but not necessarily on both sides. It was more like I was just horrible to them and they took it because they're absolute, they're saints and they're amazing. Um, But now I have great relationships with them. I can talk to them about anything. I don't take my anger out on them or anything like that. Friendships was a whole different story. I have really bad trauma from friendships. Um, I find it hard maintaining friendships, sort of. I kind of pull away a lot because I got rejected so much from friends growing up. I got left out of things because I was so intense. And so it's not as if it's affected my relationships on my end when I'm, you know, maybe in an episode, it's obviously affected it for the other person and impacted them because they don't like what I've said. They don't like what I've done. 
It's then for me, though, after when they leave me out of something because they don't want to obviously be around me for some reason or they don't, they, they don't understand me, that now that I'm older, when I start becoming friends or close with people, I will still keep a barrier up and keep them at a distance and a lot of the times say no to things because I'm too scared. I'm not going to get invited to something else. So I just, I say like, well, I'm distancing myself first. So I don't get left out of something. I don't get hurt. So like, this sounds really bad, but I always go into things, meeting new people. I love meeting new people. But when I leave, I will automatically assume that they didn't like me. And that brings me comfort in a very odd way. It doesn't bother me. I just go, well, they probably didn't like me because I know so many people have in the past and I've been shocked by it that they're not liking me, that now I can be like, well, I already knew that. So I'm not affected by it. I'm not hurt by it, which is not a healthy way to live, obviously. It's just kind of, I guess, the tools, the negative tools that I've come up with from past trauma of being undiagnosed and, yeah, going through that. And then boyfriends are a whole other story. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, obviously, I was super obsessive with boyfriends growing up and did crazy things for them. And that obviously held a lot of trauma as well. Now, I think, sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but I feel like a lot of my relationships are now based on trauma, not necessarily, but that have been caused by my bipolar. I feel like because I did things in relationships when I was maybe in an episode when I was younger, things happened that then impacted my life. So then now that's the trauma. It was like the trauma is being undiagnosed. I love how you described then um, what was kind of going on in your, in your friendships as an adolescent in the sense that, you know, you were kind of in this quite heightened state um, other people didn't really know how to respond to that. You didn't know what it was. And then that was causing you stress because of their negative social feedback, which is probably making you more heightened and then, and so on and so forth. And this is one of the things where I feel like um, having pe more people understand all the variations in how people's brains can work is so important because how amazing if you were able to say, and they were able to actually be receptive to and understand too back then, Hey, just so you know, I have bipolar. If there's anything that I'm doing that's upsetting you, let me know, you know, just kind of establishing that communication because I think people are so prone to interpret other people's behavior as like a slight on them when nine times out of 10, the behavior of other people has nothing to do with us or, you know, whatever, it's something going on for them. So educating teens in particular with that language and all the ways brains can be different, I think can undo a lot of that trauma. And I love the way you described it, you know, your relation, the way you um, conduct yourself or how you think about relationships now is, is trauma informed in the sense of your brain is like, well, better put up the wall so that you don't get rejected. Yeah. And I don't experience like when I, my friends now who I talk about this so openly with, and, you know, it's so different now because when I talk to them, if I talk in a way that I'm like, I'm not going to come to that because, you know, they're like, stop, <laughs> you know, what's going on? And they can talk about it with me. But that is my biggest thing that I talk about all the time is how frustrating. I don't want any teenager to go through what I went through um, and, you know, have these walls up when they're my age and really struggle still and trying to bring those walls down. But 
I want people to talk about it so much more. I do feel like a lot of the time it can be like chalked up to hormones and things like this. And you're just in high school. Everyone's anxious in high school. 100%. That could be the case with some people, but no, it takes the average amount of time is nine years to get diagnosed with bipolar. That is so long for someone to be living nine years. That is crazy to me. And I just wish there was a way to faster diagnose someone. And I know that can be really scary for a teenager at that age, but I do feel like we're in the right time in this world where we are a lot more progressive. And I do feel like, you know, social media, people talk about it on TikTok and, you know, people are becoming more confident about it. And so I do feel like teenagers could handle that diagnosis today. And I do feel like it would change their whole entire lives and they can have a completely different experience. So that's my biggest thing. And also when I talk about my friends in high school, because some of them I'm still really close with, they're some of them my best friends. I don't blame them for how they sometimes treated me because we we both know that I was treated really badly between my friends and I, we've spoken about it, but I'm like, they didn't understand and they were young. And I just feel like that's the most important thing. Like they needed to understand also what, I could have been going through or what might've been wrong or just under- if I had a diagnosis, understanding bipolar, because I do think it really would have changed so many different outcomes. Yeah. I think the education is so important, getting the right diagnosis, getting the education. And I think for mental health practitioners, again, I wonder how many specialize in bipolar, especially psychologists, because I guess we sort of see that more as maybe a domain for psychiatrists to treat within that medical model. But yeah, I think, you know, knowing the right diagnosis for yourself, being able to educate the people around you and the people around you being able to go, okay, you know, my loved one has bipolar. What does that mean? Like, how can I educate myself, research, and how can they understand and make meaning from, you know, okay, my loved one's in a hypermanic episode. What does that mean? Et cetera. Monique, yeah, I really agree on psychologists often feeling like it's not in our domain um, and it's it's one of those um, diagnoses that, as we've discussed previously today, kind of still feels quite scary or, you know, intense. And I think the response of a lot of uh, frontline mental health practitioners, even GPs, can be coming from a place of trying to um, protect the client or the patient or whatever um, by saying, oh, no, 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 it's not that. It's one of these like more acceptable or, you know, quote unquote manageable kind of things. Um, And that can cause people to be quite resistant to actually sending people along for further diagnostic exploration or even suggesting it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned as a diagnostician or working in kind of diagnostic space, and when you first start, you can be so anxious about this, but it's something that very quickly has become clear. If you are a mental health practitioner or a frontline practitioner, and you think something might be the case for someone, and you've got evidence for that, don't just say say it because it came to your head. Um, but if there's evidence that that could be going on for someone, just say it. Because if you're being stressed about, oh, this person's not going to take this well, or they might have a bad reaction, you're actually doing them a disservice. Because, you know, exactly as you said, Anastasia, when that diagnosis was first given to you, you were like, no way. 
right? And that was really upsetting for you. But it actually turned out to be the best thing that happened to you in your understanding of yourself. So not being afraid to actually call a spade a spade and just say, actually, yeah, I think this is going on for you. And if you're not an expert in that, refer on, but calling it as you see it. I have a really, since from my experience and from a lot of my friends' experience who I've spoken to about, you know, meds, I find it really hard to accept that GPs can give over things like antidepressants purely because, and this could be just, maybe it was just my GP. Maybe it's a coincidence that it was my friend's GPs as well. But what I've experienced, you know, getting put on an antidepressant that one, I mean, I know I had undiagnosed bipolar, but going on that and then also only getting put on a small dose that was never checked in on and never, I didn't know that I was meant to move up in that dose until it felt right. I felt can be really dangerous. And I've seen my friends go through the same thing and they now have completely different diagnosis, completely different medications because they've finally like followed up and gone and seen a psychiatrist. So it's something that I do struggle with. Again, I don't know if it's just a coincidence. I don't know, but it's something that I find really hard to swallow because I feel like it could have saved me a lot of years, you know, at least five. I completely agree with you. I think um, in my head, um, here's how the health system should work. Um, I think GPs are um, excellent referrers. A GP should have a really quite encyclopedic knowledge of lots of different conditions and presentations and know, okay, this is the, you know, five things that it could be. And I'm going to refer you to specialists in these areas to explore those five things. They're that first point of call. Definitely when it comes to medication management, I think it's really important to be managed under a psychiatrist or someone who's a specialist, you know, in that condition. Um, And then, you know, as I see it, I feel like if you're managed just for accessibility point of view, if you're managed under a psychiatrist, the GP can then potentially do things like refill scripts and just kind of be that regular point of contact. But the actual medication and dosage should absolutely be managed under a specialist. Yeah. I think one thing to think about too, with GPs prescribing, you know, mental health medications is if the GP is going to prescribe you something, and this is good for people to generally know, they should explain the medication to you. They should explain what are the pros and cons, what are the risks and potential side effects before you go on it. And the GP should be encouraging you to make a follow-up appointment to see, like check in with you and see how is that medication going for you. Um, So that's sort of like ideal, ideal practice. Especially because a lot of my friends said they felt really numb. Like I hear it so much. People don't want to go on an antidepressant because they feel so numb. With my experience that time, and then also when I started my antidepressant for my PTSD, yeah, I felt numb at first, but then I worked with my psychiatrist and I went up and then I felt a bit different, but something still wasn't right. And then I went up again and that whole feeling of feeling numb completely went away. So I don't know if, yeah, it could be that that medication wasn't right for that person, but I'm also questioning Maybe it was just that you needed to experiment with the dose and you completely missed out on that part. So anyway. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think that's it's a really important point point, because medications for mental health conditions, for anxiety, for mood regulation, for anything like that, it can sound like a really simple thing. Oh, I'm taking an anti-anxiety medication. 
or I'm taking an antidepressant. But it's actually not. It, it actually has quite significant interactions with multiple aspects of, you know, your health, your own personal brain functioning, all of these different things. And what is an appropriate dosage and uptake for one person might not be for another person for multiple different reasons. And this is why it's so important to have a specialist actually manage that. We've had a chat about your experience of hypomanic episodes and depressive episodes. Can you tell us um, how long they usually last for you? Yeah, so mine do differ sometimes. Like, but then I think back, and there is a very amongst like across all the years, especially recently, there is a kind of pattern that I am following. I do think my hypomanic episodes last. I mean, obviously, I can't pinpoint a date, <laughs> but I do think they last like three to four months sometimes. Um, I'm obviously, I don't feel like I'm necessarily, it's not like you're sitting there constantly and you're like in this episode. Like, you know, I obviously have times where I'm chill, but I definitely think, especially this previous one started maybe May um, and definitely goes on for months. And then I do feel like I then go into a depressive episode potentially from being, from being hypomanic. I don't get depressed for as long as I become hypomanic. So my depressive ones might last two weeks. There was one in high school that did last a year, but that was caused from completely different things. You know, that was caused from really horrific bullying. Um, and that's what was making me depressed where these other ones that can be caused by my hypomania, I don't feel like last like for longer, maybe than a month. And I do now have the skills to kind of get out of it, which really helped me. So, yeah. So that's probably a good segue into our next question, which is what kind of behavioral strategies or just life things do you do to kind of make your life a bit more functional for yourself? And, and things like, you know, how do you actually get yourself out of those depressive episodes? How do you manage yourself in those hypermanic episodes? So the biggest thing in my life is routine, <laughs> routine, routine, routine. I have to live by a routine, which I have been struggling lately with in my hypomanic episode because I am having, and this is such like, again, air quotes, a first world problem. I'm feeling a lot of resentment <laughs> towards the fact that all my friends can go about and live their lives and travel overseas and, you know, go out on the weekend spontaneously. And then I'm like in this hectic, you know, and so I have recently been like, I'm just going to go out and get wasted, which is not good for me at all. But routine does really help me. And I feel really good when I'm in a routine. You know, I feel really clear headed. My thoughts aren't confused. Um, I go to bed the same time every night. I usually go to bed at 9.30. I like to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. I usually wake up early because I don't like to be rushed in the morning. If I get up and walk out the door, then I'm scattered. I like to be able to get up, sit there for like half an hour, go to the gym, come back, you know, I would rather do that than come home and do that. You know what I mean? That's when my energy comes out most in the morning. So that really helps me. Um, it's also writing out so many lists, taking things step by step. Whenever I get worked up over something and there's so many things to do in the day, or there's just so many areas I need to tackle, I really have to just keep saying to me myself, 
take it one step at a time. And sometimes I can't believe it, but I have to just really just keep saying it because then I can realize that I can get these jobs done. It's not overwhelming my brain. There isn't too much information and it's just one foot in front of the other. A lot of it is also reminding myself of what is out of my control. So when I've in the past really become, you know, aggressive or upset about things that I cannot control at all. I And I'm not talking about my bipolar, sorry. I'm talking about if something at work that I had no control over that I'm upset about. I should have clarified that. I really have to remind myself that this is out of my control and it shouldn't get me stressed because there's nothing I could have done about it. So just things like that really help me. A lot of it is, yeah, sticking in routine and really just repeating phrases in my head to even if I don't believe it for the first five minutes, just keep doing it and just follow it so that I don't get out of sorts. Um, exercise is so important, uh, not for, you know, obviously looking good or anything like that. It's literally just to get my energy out and clear my head because we're so confused and so many thoughts are in our head. And then obviously eating healthy. I don't know what it is about diet, but I've read so many things that even like fried food and stuff like that can really affect your bipolar. And I love fried food, so I still eat it, but I really have to try my hardest to actually just eat a healthy life. And that also comes into like, you know, my eating disorder. I don't want to say I don't struggle with my eating disorder anymore because I definitely, I obviously always have a hate love relationship with food, but I don't binge and purge, but that obviously can help with just making sure, you know, I have to make sure I get my three meals in every day. I can't, and that's a part of my whole routine as well is sitting down for lunch at the same time, sitting down for dinner at the same time. It can make it really hard when I get asked, you know, go out to dinner with friends. Cause then I feel like my whole week has changed. I can't just go out for dinner with a friend and be like, I'll just start again, you know, get back on track tomorrow morning. I'm like, the week is done. <laughs> I have to restart on Monday. You know, I have to get back in my routine on Monday. That's something I'm working on. <laughs> so yeah, it's just things like that. It's like trying to take it one step at a time. Yeah, those are really great tips. Um, a couple of things I just wanted to chat about there. Firstly, with the routine, it's it's really interesting and helpful that you're kind of describing that as such a positive behavioral strategy for you. One of the things that we know is can, or, or can be kind of different for people who uh, have bipolar is they often have a hard time with that internal regulation, which makes sense, you know, mood regulation, et cetera. And so having that external structure that helps kind of keep you on track and keep you regulated is really important. It's almost like if I've got the kind of structure and I've got the thing that I can slot into, then great, everything's fantastic. But if I take that away and I'm having to just regulate myself on a day-to-day basis without that external structure, then that could be really challenging. So that's awesome that you found that so helpful. And the other thing with sleep, diet and exercise, oh my God, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. This is my mantra that I say to everyone that everyone hates, Um, which is, you know, these three things, they're really the pillar of our our physical and mental health functioning. It's not surprising at all that you find that managing your diet ha- can have a really positive effect on your bipolar symptoms because of that whole gut-brain connection, our microbiome, the impact of our gut health on our mental health. Everything is all connected there. So, you know, and, and a lot of research has found actually, which you're probably aware of, that connection between inflammation 
in our body and triggering, you know, bipolar episodes. So if we're making sure that stress is low, you're getting good sleep, that's in a routine, you're physically moving your body, you're eating nutritious food regularly, that kind of regularity is really important. That's actually going to alleviate a lot of the conditions which create this kind of high inflammation, high stress, which triggers some episodes. And it's so, it's interesting because when I'm not when I'm in that, I am so clear headed, like so level headed, so clear headed. I'm at work. Everything is making sense. And I mean, I'm kind of, I know I, sh- it's hard because I do still drink alcohol. I know a lot of people with bipolar don't or can't, but I do drink alcohol nowhere near the amount a lot of people I hang around with do because I just can't, like I cannot go out three days, four days a week. It's just not happening for me. I go out like once every two weeks, maybe, but even that little, part I'm like the next day I'm like my head is so confused was that really worth it I'm not saying there's anything bad with like necessarily alcohol but sometimes for me it's just so not worth it because even though yes routine can sound boring my life is still pretty fun I can still you know go and hang out with my friends and maybe not drink sometimes and then also just like it's worth it to feel so good come that Monday morning and feel so good throughout the week. And you know what I mean? And then if I go traveling or something like that, I do have to mentally prepare myself that I'm going to be out of routine and have a routine to the lead up of the travel. And then maybe give myself an extra day of leave when I come back to get myself back in routine. And it makes traveling so much easier. Otherwise I would have a freak out. So there's just little things like that that if I do want to change up my my routine, I know the steps that I need to do to before and after to then just smoothly transition back into normal working day life. Yeah, it's funny, um, the whole alcohol thing, because I feel like Australia, UK, America, all Western countries, we actually have such a massive problem with alcohol. You know, the, the fact that a lot of people feel like, I cannot have a good time unless I've completely removed my kind of cognitive functioning is actually very problematic. Um, and it's it's interesting, you know, and I know we're close to out of time, but I, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your experience of, you know, the reactions that you've gotten from people, you know, when you say, oh, I'm not drinking or, you know, I'm not, I'm still going to come out, but I'm I'm just not going to get drunk tonight. Um, has that been easy to manage or difficult? It's hard. I mean, I, I do very rarely do that. And it's, and I will just choose just not to go, which is annoying because I'm missing out. I've missed out on a lot of things, but I'm still in that transition of like finding it hard to sometimes maybe not drink. I do get bored really easily in conversations. And I think I've then used, cause like, I don't know if it's my mind or what, I just like have to go home and sleep. So I feel like I've used alcohol over the years to sustain being out and having a good time. And even with my hypomanic episode recently, I have been getting like to the end of the week being so flustered that I'm like, I just want to get so drunk and forget and just like relax. And that's obviously not healthy, sustainable. Clearly I've had like panic attacks and things like that. Um, So I can't obviously do that, but I've thought about going completely sober and talked about it with my family and my friends. 
And I don't know if I am ready for that. I don't know if I'll ever do that, especially because I have so much time off drinking and kind of know when I need to stop. But for those times when I'm in a hypomanic episode, I'm like, me, I shouldn't drink, but then like, how do I identify that? So maybe I, it's like a whole thing for me. Um, but I guess I have a lot of friends that don't drink um, who are really inspirational. They haven't had a, had a drink for two years and they're absolutely amazing. They have kind of mastered however it is and everyone accepts it and everyone will still invite them places. They sometimes be the last ones to leave. But it obviously still, you know, I have that stigma in my head that if I'm not drinking, my friend's going to be like, oh, why not? Like, come on. Oh, my God, I really wanted you to get wasted with me this weekend. Like, you know, and then it's summer. I wasn't drinking last night and all I wanted to do was have a drink because it's such good weather and everyone's at the pubs. And I'm like, ah. Um, But it's something I still need to work on. And I think the stigma around it is getting better that you don't need to drink. But I do feel like it's a massive peer pressure situation and also a massive like you've just finished the most hectic week of work, stress. And that's all I want to do is just drink and be in this state of like chilling. And that's a bad way to look at it. But that's what ultimately it comes down to. Well, I mean, yeah, alcohol is a depressant, right? So it actually works really well for a short period of time at getting you into kind of a a relaxed state. It's like five hours of feeling great for 40 hours of the working week, feeling like absolute shit until I, sorry, until I get back into my routine on Wednesday. So Anna, tell us about what strengths your neurodivergence has given you. Yeah. I mean, I always say that I think people with mental health issues, neurodivergent people are the strongest of people because they face challenges every day in their life that are out of their control and, you know, can make it through the working day and things like that. And you sometimes would have no idea. So I think we're very strong and we're, you know, the stigma is that we're, you know, weak because we might break down or something like that. And it's the complete opposite. Um, So I definitely think I, some of my strengths, I mean, today now is that I'm a lot better at regulating my emotions and I'm also a lot better at seeing sort of the bigger picture and understanding another person's point of view and trying to just understand where they're coming from a lot more. I don't know why that's one of my strengths. It just happens to be one of them. And I feel like I can sometimes, not all the time, obviously, the situations I'll never understand, but there's times where I feel like I can understand where that person's coming from and put myself in their shoes and really imagine what that would be like for them. Um, Another one is also, I really don't care what people think of me. And it's definitely from all the stuff I've done in the past that I'm now like, I mean, can it really get any worse? No, I'm kidding. But I just, I think you build up from bad stuff in high school and things like that. I've just really built up a tolerance for being like, if you don't like me, I don't kind of care. I really like who I am. I've had people kind of make fun of me for the stuff I put out on my social media. And I just don't care because I'm like, I'm living who I am. I'm not afraid to be who I am and speak up. I feel sorry for you that you don't feel like you can express yourself so freely like I can. So I think that definitely is one of my strengths is being really confident in who I am. I do get confused sometimes in who I am, but I feel quite still confident in like the person that I am and how far I've come. 
Um, so I think those are kind of my main things is just feeling a lot more strength inside me like every single day and feeling a lot more happy with who I am and confident in who I am and not letting what other people think of me bother me at all or worry about it. Yeah, I love that. It's such a good point as well about people who are neurodivergent or people who've had mental health struggles or various things go on in their internal world. Actually being one of the strongest people, you know, around. A really good analogy I like around that is kind of unpacking, I guess, the idea of resilience. And, you know, resilience is this sort of buzzword, right, where we say, oh, like you need to learn resilience. And I'm talking about that in the sense of kids who are neurodivergent in schools are often told, like, you just need to learn how to be more resilient, right? But it's almost like you're out in a thunderstorm and the rain is pouring down and you're just in a singlet and shorts and someone who is wearing a really warm coat with an umbrella comes up and says, why are you shivering? You actually just need to be more resilient. I I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm out here too. I'm in the exact same weather as you and I'm fine. Yeah. So what's wrong with you? And it's like, well, I'm not wearing a coat and I don't have an umbrella. So <laughs> it's actually harder for me. So, I love that so yeah, much. Me too. Me too. So, you know, this kind of idea of people who are neurodivergent or having mental health issues being weaker um, is actually exactly as you said, Anastasia, so completely false. The opposite is true. You've been out here in a thunderstorm in a singlet and shorts while everyone else has had a coat. Um, and that does give you this incredible kind of internal strength. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Oh, you just made me get goosebumps. <laughs> I love it. So thank you so much, Anastasia, for coming on the podcast. It was such a great chat. Thank you for having me. I had the best time. It was so nice to just talk about everything so freely. So thank you. And is there anything you want us to plug or anywhere that our listeners can follow you if they want more? Yes, definitely. So my podcast is the Bipolar Diaries podcast. You can find it on Spotify. You can really find it on any platform. Uh, and then I also post a lot of socials. So you can find me on Instagram at the Bipolar Diaries underscore. And I post little trailers and little sneak peeks of my episodes that I put up. And they're sometimes funny and sometimes we have a good serious chat about life. So, yeah. Amazing. So we'll link to those in the show notes for this episode uh, if anyone's interested. Awesome. Thanks, Anastasia. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.